electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And here's what's ahead. Stocks are down again today. Key yield curves are getting more deeply inverted. Jamie Dimon says we've never lived through a time like this. So how do you invest? We'll get some advice for 2023. The housing market, as we know, slowing rapidly. The Equifax CEO saying earlier today, we're already in a mortgage recession. The numbers that show just how quickly things have changed. Plus, the Georgia Senate runoff today. The race is close and the result is critical. Why a 51-49 Senate is much different for business than a 50-50 split. But first, we begin with the market numbers. For that, we go back to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob? Hello, Kelly. Good to see you, as always. Uh, The bottom line is very simple. This mini boomlet that began with Jay Powell last Wednesday, remember that speech? It's basically over. We've come completely uh, on a round trip. Take a look at the major indices right now. Dow Industrial is being weighed down. Goldman is notably weak today. Basically, it's a very defensive day today. Uh, only thing is up is names like United Health, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, other big names like Visa are to the downside. The S&P is being weighed down by tech stocks, communication services, consumer discretionary. Uh, NASDAQ is the weakest sector, as you can see here. Uh, not only are the ARC stocks, uh, Kathy Wood stuff down, semiconductors are also underperforming. And if you look at big cap tech in general, uh, Meta's not having a good day, as you see here, down about 6%. Uh, uh, um, and most of the semiconductors like Advanced Micro and NVIDIA are weak. Apple's down 1.7 percent. Uh, Amazon also on the weak side. Travel stocks are weak today. Now, um, we had some downgrade. Down, uh, J.P. Morgan downgraded um, Royal Caribbean there, you see. And Carnival's weak. Norwegian's weak. Uh, Expedia also weak as well. So all the travel names are notably weak. Uh, they had been rising recently. Now, it's interesting to hear them down here today because at the Goldman Sachs conference, there's a big Goldman Sachs financial conference that's going on today, and a number of companies have commented on the travel business here. So American Express was talking this morning. They said they're still seeing record travel bookings. Bank of America spoke, uh, the CEO there, uh, Brian Moynihan, he said travel was strong, consumer is still strong, although the rate of growth for the consumer is slowing a little bit. And Alibank said they expect uh, a soft landing or a mid landing, that was the word they used, uh, on the economy. All generally optimistic comments, but the banks are not doing well. In fact, the banks have been terrible performers in the last few days. Now, J.P. Morgan is up today because Morgan Stanley, oh, now it's down. (laughs) J.P. Morgan was up all throughout the morning. It got an upgrade over at Morgan Stanley. Uh, and very good volume earlier on, but Amex down, Bank of America, Zions had a terrible day yesterday, down almost 7%. So some of these banks are starting to appear to be anticipating somewhat weaker economic conditions in 2023. So where are we, Kelly? Well, remember the Powell press conference last Wednesday. We went from 3950 to 4100 on the S&P. And there you go, Kelly. That is a complete round trip. We're back to where we started just a half hour before Jay Powell started talking last Wednesday. That was 39.50. We're now at 
41. Kelly? Excellent point, Bob. Just before I let you go, what do you think accounts for the weakness, the heavy trading again that we're experiencing as we go through the afternoon here? I, I think that investors are really trying to come to grips. If 2022 was a story about dealing with inflation, 2023 is the story about dealing with the recession and how bad is the recession going to be. And this weakness in bank stocks here, they seem to be trying to price in some kind of increase in loan provisions for uh, loans going bad because the economy is going to be in tough shape. And yet we don't see this happening yet. We don't even hear about it necessarily at the Goldman Financial Conference. That's why we're all listening in on it to look for this stuff. But everyone seems to be wanting to believe that it's happening. This is one of these little things where Wall Street suddenly levitates itself into believing something. Uh, maybe it'll get more sensible or maybe we'll get news that'll confirm it uh, or, or negate it at this point. Sure. But that's definitely what's going on. Yeah. And the only news flow lately, uh, some layoffs at Morgan Stanley as well that were that are just coming in. Bob, we'll leave it there for now. We appreciate okay. it. Bob Bassani. We heard from a number of CEOs on the business roundtable this morning as well. And J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon didn't mince words about one of his biggest worries. The other risk we have is quantitative tightening. We've never had it before, ever in the lifetime of mankind. So I look at that as something we should be quite concerned about. And Rick Santelli is here to react. And to tell us, Rick, what's the latest with that yield curve? Yeah, you know what? Jamie Dimon really nailed it. I remember Ira Harris and I, uh, during the credit crisis, talking about how the quantitative easing then, which was at half the speed it turned out to be in the last couple of years, only reached up to $4 trillion back in the credit crisis, how we ended up taking a ride out to Mars. But does the central bank know how to get us back? And that's exactly what Jamin Diamond's questioning. Look at a two-year, year-to-date. It's up, yes, 365 basis points. It settled a bit under three-quarters of 1% at the end of last year. Look at 10-year. They're up what, 205 basis points on the year? They settled last year right around 1.5%. The reason I'm giving you that is not only to underscore what minus 81 and twos versus tens, but how long-dated treasuries have picked a direction. They're moving lower, and a lot of this happened after the August pivot. So what we're having is a battle de jour versus uh, selling versus slowing. And that's exactly what the yield curve is telling us right now. It's looking at a slowing economy, so long-dated prices are going up, yields are going down. But the quantitative tightening is barely in the first chapter, and that's going to put pressure in the other direction. So that battle has really yet to be waged, and the central bank has no idea how demand may suffer if the globe goes into recession without our central bank being the buyer of last resort. And we got to talk about those spreads, Rick. I mean, we started off the year by saying, hey, it's not all about twos, tens, for instance. Now here we are saying, well, the ones, the three months, any measure you want to look at is pretty deeply inverted by the most in quite some time. And to pick up by, on what Bob was just talking about, what has changed or hasn't since we heard from the Fed chair last week now? Has he done anything to uninvert them? Well, I love Bob's comments. The equities have given it all back, but treasuries have not, especially long-dated treasuries. We settled under 3.5% the other day. This is big time to see a bit of divergence there, and I think it continues. 
This is going to be a tough one to handicap on how the globe is going to deal with long-term rates, especially at a time where a lot of those global buyers may end up here, not in Europe, not in Asia, especially not in Asia. And when Bob says the banks and people are scratching their head, I say quit scratching and just look towards history. All those low interest rates for too long by our central bank or negative rates in the rest of the world, there was a lot of deals, a lot of loans, a lot of derivatives that have yet to breathe like a bottle of wine opened up with these new higher rates. Believe me, there's going to be ongoing pressure in many of those deals that were consummated prior to around 2018. Great point. Great analogy. Uh, We appreciate it, Rick. Always a pleasure. Uh, Rick Santelli. Let's turn back to stocks falling again on those concerns that the Fed could tighten us into a recession. My next guest says, while earnings will drop, they won't collapse. He believes the market will surprise to the upside in the first half of next year. Joining us is Andrew Slimman. He's senior portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. And you're starting to go against the crowd a little bit here, Andrew. What makes you comfortable with this kind of optimism? Well, it's optimism for the first half of the year. I'm not so sure I'm as optimistic on the second half. I just think the economy, the story of this year, uh, one of the stories has been the economy has remained far more resilient than what many of the bears predicted. Uh, you know, earnings have come down, but they haven't collapsed. And I guess, you know, I'm a portfolio manager. I listen to companies and they're telling me things are not disasters. There are, you know, pockets like technology where you're starting to see slowdown. But overall, I don't think we're going to see this big earnings collapse in the first quarter. Uh, And so I do expect the economy to continue to remain more resilient than what, you know, than the first half, you know, kind of collapse expects. I do think, however, as Rick has so well articulated, the yield curve is inverted. And that is a very good predictor that there is a slowdown out there. It's just not a very good predictor of when it will occur. And I suspect that we eventually, the economy will succumb to these tightening. It will just take longer than people uh, or the bears uh, expect. All right. So we promised people that you might have some strategies. So we all go, great. It's just going to be a question of when and how bad the recession is. And, and yet, uh, what are we, dollar cost average into stocks? You, you think Lennar could be a name to own here? Pool Corp down 43 percent this year. K-Web? I mean, these are not, you know, the safe <laughs> stocks that might make people feel sure. comfortable sleeping at night. Alibaba's well, on your list as well. Sure. Yeah, well, you make your money buying low when things don't feel great. And when, when you're buying stocks that make you feel great, that's a danger sign, you know that, Kelly. So let's start with the housing stocks. Look, these stocks peaked long before the housing cycle turned down. They peaked when rates uh, bottomed, mortgage rates bottomed. And as mortgage rates went up, they got clobbered, right? They have had a bear market. So if a stock's down 40 or 50%, you have to question, could things change? The point of this is, if rates were starting to come down. We're seeing the long end of the curve come down. Mortgage rates could come down. We may be through the bear market for these stocks, even though the housing, you know, housing could turn turn lower. Uh, so that's, you know, that, that's my view on that in terms of the K with China. Look, uh, this has been a disaster the last few years. And yet what gives me comfort is the dollar is breaking down. EM currencies are starting to rally. And you have a pivot in China from zero COVID to resuming their goals of common prosperity. I think China could be the best performing uh, markets uh, in the world in 2023. And that's coming off of a very short time ago 
where the belief was they were uninvestable. Well, these are some fabulous calls. I mean, that the housing bear market is behind us, that China could be the, the asset class to own, um, you know, that we might not have an earnings collapse next year. So maybe let's end with if there is a, a couple of places that you really worry about in the market, what are they? Where wouldn't you be? Well, what I worry about is what happens if oil goes to $100 barrel. Hmm. Because, I, you know, one of the reasons why I think we could get a rally from here into year end is simply that we've got the PPI coming on Monday. We got CPI on, on Tuesday, FOMC minutes on Wednesday. All those could actually support, you know, a little bit of a, a rally into year end. But if we get oil back higher again, I think, you know, there's, that, that would stuff out kind of this elongated uh, economic you know, downturn that I believe. I just don't think it's as sudden as many people believe. Very interesting point. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in a moment. Andrew, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Andrew Slimman with Morgan Stanley. Speaking of Morgan Stanley, let's get a quick check on their shares as our Hugh Sun is reporting that the company is set to announce it's cutting 2% of staff. The stock down 3.5% near session lows right now as the financials are under pressure. For the full story, head over to CNBC.com. Coming up, Georgia's Senate runoff race won't shift overall control of the chamber, but the difference between a 50-50 split and a 51-49 could still have huge implications for policy and for your money. We'll explain. Up next, Brian Sullivan goes inside Europe's energy crisis with a look at its massive gas gap and look at the stock market impact. We're live in the Netherlands with the story after this break. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're continuing our special coverage of Europe's energy crisis because while European natural gas storage levels are better than hoped, what doesn't get enough attention is the other problem, and that's cost. What it may mean to lower income countries outside of Europe as well. Brian Sullivan is back with more from the Netherlands. Brian? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, that's really the third leg of the stool here. Earlier this morning, we talked about demand. I don't want to say it's unlimited, but certainly Europe will take all it can get. Then we talked about supply, in which case, by the way, we went out on a boat in the port of Rotterdam. We had a drone. It was very cool to get up next to these LNG ships to talk about that supply, a lot of it coming from the United States. Uh, by the way, one of the ships that you're seeing now, uh, t- 10 or 12 of those would be 1 billion cubic meters. I'll-, I'll bring that up in a second because the numbers are pretty staggering. So we talked about supply. 
But let's now talk about cost, because here's the other reality of the energy crisis. Can Europe get most of the natural gas it needs? Well, it certainly did this year. Storage was 95% full, and everybody said, okay, problem solved. Well, remember, more than half of that was done with Russian pipeline gas. That's not quite zero now, Kelly. So the idea is, okay, can they get all they need for next year? Maybe. But the other issue is at what cost? Europe, it's a wealthy area. The Netherlands, wealthy in part because of natural gas. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but they can afford to take on debt, and they can afford to buy natural gas that might go to other places. So another leg of the story you've got to remember, Europe, they're going to keep their, their, you know, their citizenry happy. But are they stealing natural gas from countries that simply can't afford it? Countries like Pakistan or Sri Lanka or other places where they might need one or two tank loads of LNG, but they can't outbid Europe. We're already seeing some of these problems. So keep in mind the cost issue. Then it comes down to the, the electricity cost generation. Natural gas itself Right? It's good for making chemicals, maybe good for making electricity. You remember this summer when electricity prices went sky high, when all these countries are trying to buy it up at the same time. They're trying to debate a possible price cap, Kelly. They haven't gotten to that. They got to one on oil. They haven't gotten to one on natural gas yet. We'll see if they do. But what's going to happen next year with electricity costs if they don't get a price cap? They were paying 10 times what we were paying in the United States. And when you travel around Europe, you see lights dimmed. You see basic services that are starting to get hit around the margin. Oh, and by the way, the other thing I will say is this, and, and I'm not going to make dive into the climate change conversation, which just becomes all political and, and nasty. As we import all this LNG from the U.S., Norway, and other places into the Netherlands, just keep in mind, the Netherlands has the largest natural gas field in, the United, in, in, in Europe. It's called Groningen. Now, it uses a slightly different type of natural gas. It's low sulfuric, caloric, whatever. And there have been obviously some earthquake issues, which I'm not minimizing in any bit. But as part of their effort to go green, the Netherlands is going to be winding down the biggest field in Europe, which, by the way, has about 3,000 BCM, when the shortage this year will be about 30 BCM, but import it by ship from places like the United States into the harbor. So the, the natural gas is coming from somewhere. They're just right. going to outsource it from the United States. Here's my question as you're I'll traveling. I'll leave that to the viewer's imagination. Absolutely. As you're traveling around there, do you sense resentment amongst Europeans about the extent to which they've borne the brunt of this crisis or uh, pride that this is the way in which they're trying to push for what they feel is the right resolution on the Russia-Ukraine war. Do they think we need to be doing more? Are they just glad that we have the resources? What do you pick up on? Okay, well, and you know me, Kelly. I, and by the way, you're, gonna, you're hearing, like, bombs go off. They're not bombs. These are fireworks. Morocco beat Spain in the World Cup. There's a huge Moroccan expat population here in Rotterdam. So there's honking horns. I don't want anybody to be alarmed if they hear explosions. These are good explosions. Okay, to that point, you know me, Kelly. I talk to everybody. Every, anybody I can get my hands on, I'm going to talk to. They kind of approach it in sort of the quiet way that you might imagine. What they say is, we support Ukraine. We think what ha is disgusting, Putin's disgusting war. But then they wonder how long and how bad might it get for them because of what's happening there. It is a, an extremely complicated geopolitical issue. Everyone, once you get to chatting with them just a little bit, has their opinion They'll say, how much longer can we suffer? Because their costs are up two and three X, Kelly.
but they're not getting the pay increases like we are. And the last thing is, the ones I talked to, they're thankful for the U.S., okay? And all the people out there in Texas and Oklahoma, we talked about it earlier, you know, they get, they get, they get, they take their punches in the United States. I can tell you, here in, here in Europe, people are pretty doggone happy to have U.S. liquefied natural gas because they get, get to keep the heat on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Brian, we'll leave it right there. We appreciate it. It's great to see you again. And congrats to Morocco. Brian Sullivan in the Netherlands. As our next guest says, the energy crisis in Europe does present an opportunity for U.S. producers to fill the void, especially for nat gas. And he's got three stock picks uh, that he expects will benefit in 2023. Rob Thummel is here with me now. He's portfolio manager at energy and, and energy asset management firm Tortoise. Rob, it's great to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. So a couple of headlines as we're sort of setting the scene for all of this. We have crude oil trading under tremendous pressure. Just went right on the session again today at a time that we're talking about shortages and the desperate need for these resources in this energy crisis. Why are we looking at a price chart of WTI now at $73 a barrel? It's gone negative on the year. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So I think it's global demand, right? So so the concern with China and the lockdown, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And what I mean by that is global demand in China is probably going to continue to decline as the Chinese economy opens up, and unfortunately more people get COVID, kind of like it has happened all over the world. But eventually we move past that, then demand comes back in China, and China will drive really the crude oil market in 2023. Likely means higher demand, with global oil inventories very low right now, um, and an undersupplied oil market longer term, you're probably gonna see oil prices go higher as a result of that. Were you as as surprised as everybody by the fact that we saw one of the great bull markets in energy of recent times completely collapse and reverse earlier this year. And it's kind of remained moribund. What do you say to investors who say, you know what, I jumped in at exactly the wrong moment. Why should I stick with this space for 2023? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So, you know, nobody wanted to talk to us a couple of years ago about energy. Uh, the last couple of years, because of the outstanding performance of, of the energy sector relative to the S&P 500, and, and this year is, is also the case, um, you know, it's a good place to be and, and probably continues to be and, and for, for a lot of reasons. Number one, there's a lot of free cash flow and the market is rewarding free cash flow. And so if investors are looking for earnings, free cash flow, and then ultimately dividends that are paid to investors, the energy sector is a great place to be. It'll be a great place to be for the next decade. So that's that's something that we're excited about. You're sure about that, that it, that it will, I mean, if we, we have to look at the Federal Reserve maybe to have an about face that can be more supportive of crude oil prices here because the tightening right now has been a terrible headwind for crude. What, what are your sort of tactical stock picks? Are they Oil names? Are they gas names? Yep. Where do you think people well, that's should a good be? Question. So we think natural gas actually has a huge, uh, makes makes a big difference going forward globally, possibly becomes uh, a bigger story than oil in the, in the next decade. Um, you know, if you look at natural gas in terms of its percentage of the global energy supply, it's risen every year for over the last couple decades while oil's come down. Natural gas is decarbonizing. The whole world needs to decarbonize. Uh, obviously, Europe's going to need more natural gas. China, India, all need more natural gas. Where's that going to come from? The U.S. So stocks that you can like as a result of that are, well, pick the biggest U.S. natural gas producer, EQT. If you've ever talked to Toby Rice, which I know you do a lot, he's an outstanding CEO. He gets it. He knows where, where things are going. Chenier Energy, another, another example. Brian just talked about the need, the need for increased LNG. Uh, Chenier's exported roughly 70 percent of the LNG to Europe. This year, I mean, so it's a so so th- that demand for U.S. energy and natural and, and natural gas in particular is probably just going to keep rising, and and the U.S. energy sector is going to going to be needed for for decades. Not you just also a like Targa Resources, TRGP. I mean, 
we have obviously a key Senate election today. We have another presidential election coming in a couple of years. What about, you know, sort of the general appetite for more fossil fuels at a time when we continue to hear Europe and we yeah. see this big Inflation Reduction Act trying to push us more towards a, a lower fossil fuel future? Yeah, so in, in big, big picture, we like the infrastructure names like Targa, uh, which is a big infrastructure uh, operator in the Permian Basin. The Permian Basin is a large oil basin in West Texas. It's the largest oil basin in the U.S. Once again, we just think you're going to need more U.S. Uh, and can Canadian oil and gas around the rest of the world. That provides the rest of the world with energy security. But to do that, you're going to need a lot more infrastructure. So even if uh, demand for, for fossil fuels declines, and oh, by the way, we think that Demand for coal could probably decline a lot, but that will be offset by increased demand for natural gas and obviously renewables as well that, that, that play an important role longer term as well. Yeah, infrastructure always seems to be kind of the quiet way. Gold rush, energy boom, you name it. Uh, we'll see if that works into next year. Rob, thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Guys. Rob Thummel, we appreciate it. I want to uh, have some new numbers coming up that will show the affordability crisis in housing. It isn't getting better and it's actually getting worse. We'll dig into the data with a housing economist. As we head to break, take a look at stocks at session lows here. Only three names in the Dow are positive, while the Nasdaq is now down another 2%. Uh, the blue chips are down more than 400 points. Boeing, Disney, and Goldman are some of your worst performers today. We'll have more after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Very familiar picture here today as at this time yesterday where we're seeing an intensifying sell-off with the Dow down 438 points right now. And look at the Nasdaq with another 2% drop. That brings its year-to-date decline to just about 30%. So relentless selling pressure here while everyone's been talking about uh, the possibility or likelihood of a year-end rally. want to show you share of, uh, shares of Paramount in particular plunging today after CEO Bob Backish said fourth quarter advertising is trending below Q3. And on pricing, he says Paramount Plus is very much value priced. There's no question they'll move it up, but investors still sending the shares down more than 7%, and the shares are down more than 40% since January. Got an exclusive interview with the CEO tomorrow, 10 a.m. on Squawk on the Street. You definitely won't want to miss it. Let's get to Christina Partson-Evelis now for our CNBC News update. Christina? Thank you, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Special Counsel Jack Smith has sent subpoenas to local officials in three states where former President Trump sought to overturn the 2020 election results. This, according to the Washington Post, Smith is reportedly seeking records from officials in Arizona, Michigan and Wisconsin. In Washington, law enforcement officers who defended the Capitol during the January 6th insurrection have been honored with Congress's highest honor. Leaders of the House and Senate recognized the officers' heroic uh, acts with the Congressional Gold Medal in a ceremony in the Capitol Rotunda. And in North Carolina, power should be restored by Thursday morning to the thousands of people left in the dark by an attack on the power grid. Utility crews have been able to turn the lights on for nearly 10,000 customers, but about 35,000 customers remain without power. Kelly, 
Back with you. All right, Christina, thank you. Still ahead, no matter what happens today in Georgia's runoff election, Democrats will still control the Senate. But my next guest says winning just one more seat would make a huge difference to policy. She tells us why next. Plus, we'll get the latest read on the housing market when Toll Brothers reports after the bell. Realtor.com's chief economist joins us with the trends she's seeing and what it tells her about when the housing bear market might end. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. The runoff election for a tightly contested Georgia Senate seat is underway, pitting incumbent Raphael Warnock, a Democrat, against Republican candidate Herschel Walker. The showdown is one of the most expensive congressional races in history, and there's a lot at stake for both parties on a national scale. Elon Moy joins us with those details. Elon? Yeah, Kelly, you're right. The Senate race in Georgia is the most expensive in the country for this cycle. Incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock running against his GOP challenger, Herschel Walker. And according to data from Open Secrets, combined spending by the two candidates and outside groups stands at $380.7 million. Now, Democrats are leading in that tally. Federal filing show Warnock himself has raised $176 million. That's roughly three times the amount that Walker has gotten, $59 million. And it's more than Warnock raised during his last campaign back in 2020. Now, those numbers cover the entire election cycle. But if you just look at the runoff race, the number is jaw-dropping as well. $84.5 million in ads have been cut in the four weeks since the midterms, according to Ad Impact. Democrats also have the advantage there, accounting for 67.7% of the ads. Republicans bought about a third. Now, this time, control of the Senate no longer hangs in balance. Democrats have already secured those 50 seats. But Eric Cantor, former House GOP leader, told me at CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit this morning that a true majority of 51 would make a difference. You have control of every committee, and so that means you set the agenda, that means you can seek and have subpoena power without the okay of the other party. Uh, you have the ability to affect your nominations in the Senate. So this has a lot to do with control and the ability to get whatever it is they're going to be able to get done for President Biden the, uh, in the Senate. So Kelly, this is about both political wiggle room as well as power over the legislative process. Absolutely. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy. Let's dive a little deeper into why that 51 number is so key for Democrats. Let's bring in Libby Cantrell. She's head of public policy at PIMCO. It's great to see you, Libby. And this committee process seems to be at the heart of it, but uh, also things like agency power, the FCC, the impact on big tech are areas to watch, no? Yes, and and, um, and good afternoon, Kelly. Nice to have you. Nice to have you back. Welcome back. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I, just to sort of reiterate uh, what Eric Cantor just said. I mean, the difference between a 51-49 Senate and a 50-50 Senate is actually pretty significant in terms of a governing majority for all the reasons he just laid out: subpoena authority, uh, running the committees, running the floor agenda, also just more money for the committees. Right now, under the power sharing agreement, all the funding for the committees are split. 50-50. Uh, that changes if Democrats win this seat today. And then to your point about oversight, um, just, just the ability actually to put some teeth in terms of 
of oversight uh, if Democrats were to win the seat today. Uh, they would be able to not only have oversight of some of the, the agencies that you discussed, but also, um, of course, of CEOs. So they actually have some subpoena authority to demand energy CEOs, uh, for instance, to show up uh, and talk about high gas prices, for as an, as an example. So, again, it really it, it means that under, you know, right now, a, a power share agreement, a 50-50 Senate. Again, Vice President Kamala Harris, of course, is the tiebreaker. But if you go to a 51-40 Senate, that's really true power uh, and something, of course, that President Biden would like, given uh, that Democrats don't have uh, control over the House in this, yeah. in this new Congress. The Journal pointing out today that even a candidate like Manchin or a senator like Manchin might not back a more progressive FCC candidate, whereas uh, that could remove an agenda that might lean differently for a lot of the members of big tech. I mean, what would your sort of um, advice to investors be about how material the impact will be from whether we find out tonight or in the weeks ahead from a more progressive versus a less so general regulatory agenda? You know, that's that's absolutely right. Um, and because uh, some of the moderate Democrats are in cycle, like Senator Manchin, actually like Senator Sinema, like Senator Tester, uh, they, you know, Biden, President Biden may not be able to rely on those senators to be, you know, pushing forward some of his progressive nominees. Again, with the 51, 40 Senate and 49 Senate, maybe a little bit easier to do that. But we shouldn't overstate this. Um, I think this is a some, somewhat in, inside baseball from kind of a markets perspective. They still only have a very narrow majority, obviously not a 60-vote uh, filibuster-proof uh, uh, majority. So their ability to really inform policy is still going to be limited here, especially given that Republicans will control the House next session of Congress. Um, but again, it gives them a little bit more cushion, a little bit more wiggle room, particularly when it comes to appointees, uh, assuming that um, because Senator Manchin in particular is in cycle, he may be less, uh, more reluctant to, to vote for some folks who are perceived as more progressive. No, it's a great point. So finally, then, where does this leave us for the next 18 months or so before that 2024 election? What is the overall message, you think, to business? Yeah, well, I mean, what we've been saying to clients, Kelly, is really that the most important thing going into the election and coming out of the election was that the fact that one chamber flipped to Republican control. That, of course, means gridlock. Uh, the markets have tended to like that. If you look at the year after midterm elections, most uh, the, you know most years the equity market has has rallied, particularly you know, per, you know particularly in, in in split Congresses. Um, so gridlock, no tax increases. So that means sort of any progressive tax uh, increase headline you should fade because that's not that's not going to going to happen but at the same time you know the threshold for fiscal support especially if we do have a hard landing which is not pimco's call but uh, if we you know if we do uh, the the threshold for additional fiscal support is also going to be higher so so gridlock no tax increases all that's good more oversight all that's going to be good from a market's perspective but also some downside uh, should we have a harder landing the threshold for more fiscal support will be much higher. Interesting. It's almost pro-cyclical, you know, more more bullish when things are, are fine and then maybe more bearish when they're not. Libby, exactly. thanks so much. It's good to see you again. Thanks, Kelly. Libby Appreciate Cantrell it. with PIMCO. Up next, after more than 50 years, the era of Boeing's 747 is coming to a close. Phil Bow is in Everett, Washington at the Boeing plant for the last day of its assembly. Phil? Welcome back, Kelly. The Big Bird finally getting ready to say a final goodbye at this plant here in Everett, Washington. So what's next for Boeing, especially when it comes to the largest of the airplanes that are flying out there? We'll talk about that when the exchange returns.
Welcome back. It's the end of an era for Boeing. The last 747 is rolling off the assembly line today. It's the plane that inspired the moniker Jumbo Jet. Phil Lebeau is in Everett, Washington at the Boeing plant with that story. And what's next, Phil? You know, Kelly, it's hard to put into words just how important the 747 is when it comes to commercial aviation. You go back to the late 60s, this was a revolutionary aircraft when it was first introduced. A double-decker, the size was, it, it dwarfed anything else that was out there. And the number of airlines that lined up and said, yes, we want this, this really did usher in the era of mass transatlantic, trans-Pacific travel. And then the question becomes, okay, what, what's the future? For Boeing, after all of these years with more than 1,500 747s built, more than 400 that are still in service, most of those as freighters. Well, and when you look at the wide body portfolio for Boeing, you're looking at the following. The 787, there's more than 400 of those. You've got the 777, more than 300, and the 767. Some of these, by the way, have been able to replace the traffic that used to be occupied by the 747. Then there's the 777X. The first flight for the 777X, we were out here in Washington when it took place in 2020, the beginning of 2020, pre-pandemic. And at the time, they said, look, we're going to put this into service in 2023. There have been a number of delays there, not just with the aircraft, also with the engine, which is manufactured by GE. And as a result, they have continued to push it back. The 777X, now certification is expected in 2024 and then going into service in 2025. By the way, more than 326 777Xs. And again, the delivery target for this aircraft, as you take a look at shares of Boeing, 2025. That will be the aircraft if you say, what's replacing the 747? Well, nothing can truly replace it, but it'll be a more fuel-efficient aircraft just as large as the 747. Kelly? And so, Phil, we don't see a lot of these 747s still in passenger service, but who does still fly them? Right. Number of the Asian airlines, especially Chinese airlines, and Lufthansa. And you will see them occasionally if you're on a transatlantic flight or transpacific. But generally speaking, most of the 747s that are now in service, they're primarily in the freighter market. All right, Phil, thank you. Our Phil LeBeau on a historic day. We appreciate it. Coming up, mortgage rates spiking this year, but well below that seven handle they hit for the first time back in September, at least for the first time recently. And the Equifax CEO making a bold call on the mortgage market earlier today. That and a check on what's next for housing after this quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Toll Brothers reports after the bell today. Shares are down 36% this year as the industry gets hit by the one-two punch of higher rates and affordability at record lows. Prices still aren't even cooling off. According to Realtor.com, for the week ending December 3rd, this is pretty recent, this is fresh, median listing prices were up 10% from the previous year. New listings fell 8%, and active inventory jumped more than 50%. Homes are spending about nine more days on the market now compared with 2021. Now, all this as mortgage rates sit above 6%. Demand had dropped to multi-decade lows when we saw that spike above 7%. It's since recovered a bit, but the CEO of Equifax is warning that we're already in a mortgage recession, probably the deepest we've ever seen. Here to respond is Danielle Hale. She's chief economist at Realtor.com. Danielle, thanks for that data. And uh, have we fallen off a, a cliff here or not? It seems more like a frozen market than a falling one. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The, the housing market has pulled back in a big way, especially since 
you know, just a year ago, we were seeing some of the busiest housing market conditions that we've seen in decades, thanks to close to record low mortgage rates. So mortgage rates have adjusted to their highest level in 20 years, and housing activity is adjusting to correspond to those new pricing conditions for shoppers in the market. I'm surprised to see Phoenix, Austin, and Denver with the most price reductions. What does that tell you? Yeah, so those areas are seeing big increases in the number of homes on the market. They're, uh, in the West region, we have seen the biggest pullback in a lot of buyer interest in the West region. It tends to have higher home prices than other areas, and it's also very tied to uh, a lot of those markets benefited from relocation as California uh, residents were able to relocate during the pandemic, take advantage of workplace flexibility. Some of that is we're seeing a pullback in. And so those markets that had benefited from that relocation are starting to see activity slow. And that's where we're seeing the biggest adjustments, where homes are increasing. And we're seeing that buyers have a little bit more negotiating power. Sellers need to be more mindful of, uh, of buyer demand and adjust their expectations accordingly. You know, if there's one refrain I've heard lately, it's people going, I'm waiting for the housing market to to crash so that I can buy. And what does that tell you about how different the psychology might be this time around than it was back, say, during the boom and bust cycle of 2006 to 2008? Yeah, I think in 2006 to 2008, I think there was a widespread um, feeling that home prices couldn't decline. And we, of course, know that that's not true. It has happened in the somewhat recent past. I think that actually is a big help for the housing market. People have bought with that mindset of knowing that you know, today's value might not necessarily be what a value is in the future. And so I think that makes the market a little bit faster to adjust, a little bit more flexible. But look, we've had a huge run up in mortgage rates, and that has changed the purchasing power for a lot of home shoppers. And so it makes sense that the housing market is going to have to adjust to those new conditions. But to go back to things that are different about this housing market compared to 2008, for example, we're looking at homeowners sitting on record levels of home equity, not just in total dollar amount, but relative to the value of real estate. So the homeowners in aggregate have about 70% of the value of their homes in equity. Back in the, um, the early 2000s, that number was closer to 60%. So homeowners are in a better position today than they were um, roughly 15 years ago. You know, they are so long as prices don't fall. Do you think that in 2023 prices could fall and wipe out some of that equity? So home prices could fall. Our base case forecast is that home prices will actually uh, continue to increase because we've seen such a huge run up in prices, even late into 2022. We're starting to see some moderation in the rate of growth, but ultimately home prices are still growing. You quoted our weekly stat, home prices are still up 10% relative to a year ago. We expect them to moderate to about half that, so 5% for the year as a whole in 2023. Um, even with that moderation, even if home prices were to decline, homeowners would still be in a better equity position than they were in 2008. So I think it's a really different market thanks to the fact that um, lending practices have changed so much over the last decade and a half. So what would you say to those friends, colleagues, neighbors, uh, folks that we've heard from who say they are still want to buy, maybe they, they can't afford the place that they want to purchase and they're hoping or waiting for a price correction. Are they going to get one? 
So our expectation is no, certainly not in 2023. Um, we have seen home prices soften a bit, so they're not growing at the same pace. And you know, in that sense, it makes it a little bit easier to keep up with the housing market as a buyer. But if, if you're waiting for a crash, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to make a decision. We don't know what's going to happen to housing uh, in the future. We have some educated guesses based on what we've seen happen in the past. Um, I think the right way to approach the housing market as a buyer is if you find a home that fits your needs, it, it meets your budget, and it's available, and there are many more of them available right now, You know, then it's the right time for you to make a move. You don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future, but as long as you're checking those boxes and making sure you're setting yourself up for success, not spending too much on your mortgage payment, making sure you have a good savings cushion in your um, you know, leftover after you make the home purchase, I think then it's the time to make a move when you're ready, whether or not uh, the market conditions have shown that home prices are declining. All right. It's like trying to time the market, but for something even more important. Uh, Danielle, thanks so much for your time today. Great to have you. Absolutely. Danielle Hale with Realtor.com. Still ahead, the International Energy Agency predicting a boom in clean energy on the horizon for the U.S. What's driving the growth and which companies and stocks stand to benefit? That's next. Welcome back. Want to get to one more thing before we go, and that's the boom in renewable energy the IEA is predicting here in the U.S. Pippa Stevens is here with what's expected to drive growth and who may benefit, Pippa. Hey, Kelly. Well, the IEA is saying today that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is turbocharging renewables as countries seek energy security, with the global energy crisis triggering unprecedented momentum behind clean energy, including in the U.S., the Paris-based agency raised its U.S. renewables outlook and now sees the industry growing 74 percent by 2027. And on the heels of the Inflation Reduction Act, executives hope to meet this newfound demand with domestic manufacturing. In the four months since the IRA passed, a host of companies have announced new or expanded domestic facilities. That includes names like First Solar, Piedmont Lithium, Fryer, Ford, and General Motors. And more are expected once we have additional clarity from Treasury and the IRS on implementation. Now, the top-line spending figure is $374 billion for clean energy. But Credit Suisse is among those who believe it will ultimately be higher to the tune of $800 billion, thanks to the uncapped nature of the credits. Add in the fact that federal support typically spurs private interest, and they said spending could hit Kelly $1.7 trillion over the next 10 years. Yeah, huge numbers. Everybody's drooling at those prospects. But European leaders, uh, leaders, I should say, like Macron, have raised concerns about the Inflation Reduction Act, saying it's unfair, trying to push back and hinting that maybe Biden has agreed to some kind of rollbacks. Are any of these projects at risk? Well, the IRA was uh, on the agenda yesterday when the U.S. and EU Trade and Technology Council met. And basically at issue here, as you said, is that European officials have said they felt blindsided by the IRA and that the subsidies will come at the expense of European growth. Now, there are some hints that some progress was made during a press conference with Francis Macron. Biden did say that some of the language could be amended, including around the um, electric vehicle materials incentives and changing that from those we have 
free trade agreements with to our allies. And so some progress there has potentially been made. But at the same time, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen saying the EU needs its own round of funding in order to boost its industrial activity. So uh, some questions here do remain. All right. Pippa, thank you. As always, our Pippa Stevens. That does it today for the exchange, everybody. But it's not just clean energy that is poised to boom. U.S. chip manufacturing could also see huge growth. We're going to look at Taiwan Semi's record investment in the U.S. coming up on Power Lunch. It begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 